Let's go to the movies, an award season podcast. Welcome to season three, episode 10. On today's episode, I will be discussing the power of the dog and Nightmare Alley. First up, we will be talking about The Power of the Dog, which was directed by Jane Campion, currently on Netflix, has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 94%. So the plot of this movie is two brothers working as ranchers in 1925 Montana. One of the brothers brings home a new wife and her son, who is relentlessly mocked by the other brother until his ultimate demise. Now, Jane Campion, I wasn't too familiar with her work, um... Some of her past stuff includes Bright Star, In the Cut, Holy Smoke, The Portrait of a Lady, The Piano, and An Angel at My Table, just to name a few. So this movie was based on a 1967 novel of the same name written by Thomas Savage. Jane Campion received the novel in 2017, and then she later acquired the rights to it after she read it and decided she wanted to make it a film. Um... Prior to that, that this novel actually had been optioned five times before she did that, and but it just never was made, which I thought was kind of interesting. Maybe uh, people just didn't really know how to tackle it fully. Um, while she was working on the script, which she also helped write, she kept correspondence with an author who actually wrote an afterword to the 2001 edition of the book, and she also visited savages montana ranch and met with his family he had died prior to all of this but she still connected with his family which i thought was pretty cool so the film was shot in her native country of new zealand the project was announced officially in 2019 with benedict cumberbatch attached to it he actually prepared for his role by researching a lot about lewis and clark and their expeditions and actually working on a ranch himself I read that he took a three-week crash course in horse riding and lassoing and everything that you would basically do as a cowboy. (laughs) But it pays off because it's all very realistic. And sometimes when, you know, sometimes in movies and such, when they're riding horses, you can tell when it's not really them or that weird close-up shot where it's not a real horse. But obviously this was not the case. So the filming for this movie began in January 2020. It was, of course, paused in March 2020 due to the pandemic. And then it resumed again later that year in June. And filming actually did wrap in July of 2020. So pretty quick film process. It is noted in some articles and such that Benedict Cumberbatch actually stayed in character on set. And he and Kirsten Dunst actually agreed to not speak to each other while they were not filming and they were just kind of hanging around. Um, which it's gotta put you in a weird headspace, right? Like, I don't know. That that feels like that'd be so weird. But I guess it helps with that tension that they create amongst each other uh on screen. This film premiered at the Venice Film Festival on September 2nd, 2021, had a limited theatrical release November 17th of that year, and then its Netflix release was on December 1st, 2021. Netflix has a very, very limited theatrical model that they do where they put a movie out maybe for like a few weeks, if that, at just like a handful of theaters, 
And they had actually been doing that long before the pandemic. So I guess a little more noticeable now, just with the distribution windows and everything. Uh, but yeah, so this one is more recent in terms of release. And so going into it, I really didn't know much about it apart from knowing that it was kind of like a Western of some sort and also that it is the most nominated film of the year in regards to the Oscars. So I mean, it piqued my interest from that perspective. Um, and I think I would have to describe this movie as a very slow burn with so many layers to it that I honestly didn't even process all of the layers until hours after the movie had ended. And uh, we're going to go into that in just a little bit. But this film is presented in five acts. To me, that kind of helped pace out the story, kind of allowed me to almost conclude the significance of each part of the story and how it was going to play into the next. So like kind of like what was my main takeaway from act one, etc. I know that's not for everybody, but I like that kind of thing, especially when the pace is a little slower, kind of makes you feel like you're making progress on the story. Uh, you are first introduced to Benedict Cumberbatch and his brother, played by Jesse Plemons, and they are running a ranch, and it's noted that they have been doing so for the past 25 years. They encounter Kirsten Dunst and her son when they stop at her inn for a meal on one of their cattle runs. And so this movie reveals info about the characters very slowly, very organically. So my opinion of them just continued to grow in different ways the more I learned about them, because you have your initial perception when you're introduced to them. And I feel like they kind of challenged that perception that you had and kind of maybe the stereotype you had. Um, story definitely plays with the themes of jealousy, resentment, masculinity, sexuality, and even family duty. There's kind of a feeling that Phil, who is Benedict Cumberbatch's character, has a very rugged persona but he is also hiding a very gentle interior. So they kind of play that dynamic, which I think Benedict Cumberbatch is actually a pretty good casting choice for that type of person because he is kind of able to show that softer side when he's not being a total cowboy jerk person. Um, and he's kind of off in his little hiding nook in the woods. <laughs> And so that was an interesting balance to strike and not something I feel like you see a lot in that type of cowboy western character. Um, but yeah, his, that rugged nature of his is put on full display when he interacts with Peter, who is Kristen Dunn's son, played by Cody Smith McPhee. And he is very awkward. He has a very feminine quality about him. He kind of has that awkwardness that doesn't quite seem like it fits in with the era he's living in. And so that is also an interesting dynamic that they build between that type of person, that type of characteristic versus that rugged outdoor cowboy rancher vibe. The story initially feels like it's um, just him kind of being picked on by Benedict Cumberbatch. And my initial thinking was like, okay, so this is just going to be the whole movie. Like, at least, at least it's going to be an undertone of the whole film. But they actually kind of flip that on its head after the two of them turn a corner and they kind of start to bond. Like, Benedict Cumberbatch is teaching him how to, like, ride a horse and be outdoorsy and stuff. 
And that kind of struck me as Phil recognizing a familiar quality in Peter and almost attempting to embrace it rather than bully it away. And so the ending of the film was made all the more jarring to me based on like that way that I was interpreting it. So just putting it out there now before I go even more further into the detail, this review is going to be a little more spoiler heavy than I feel like some of my other reviews are, mostly because that's how I needed to process what I thought of the film. And basically, there just I felt like there were several layers that needed to be unpacked, so I feel like it's hard to kind of dance around it. So with that said, from this point on, there will be direct spoilers to what happens in this film. So you have been warned. So yes, as I was mentioning, Peter and Phil, they start to bond. You kind of feel like they're forming some kind of a relationship, whether it be intimate, friendly, casual, in some capacity, it's there. So yes, as I was saying, the ending is very jarring. At the end of the film, Phil dies. And so that feels kind of sudden, kind of abrupt. Especially as I was watching it, I felt that way. I literally am not lying when I say that a full hour after the film, it all kind of hit me, like what was going on. They, I guess they being Jane Campion, (laughs) does a really good job of planting these super small breadcrumbs throughout the movie that lead you to this ultimate conclusion and final act. Almost like, you know, in some films, everything's really divert or overt. Like you would see someone grab a book off of a shelf and it's framed in such an obvious way. You're like, okay, something important is going to be going on with that book later on. So you almost are like paying attention to what it could be or like waiting for it to pop back up. But I feel like the things that ended up popping back up in this film, almost you didn't think twice about them or you didn't put that much emphasis on them. They were kind of just like I said, little breadcrumbs that were scattered in amidst the rest of the story, which I think makes this film kind of genius. So I tried to not really read any reviews or plot analysis either after I finished watching the movie because I kind of liked the way that all of the conclusions were coming to me and how the layers were just kind of being revealed in my mind. And so my conclusion of what was going on uh, was that I ultimately feel like Rose, Kirsten Dunst's character, and Peter, her son, were playing a long con the entire film. And I think ultimately it was Peter who set into motion all of the things that were going to cause Phil to die by the end of it all. And if I can turn the page of my notes, I will continue my thoughts. <laughs> there we go. So once I kind of that kind of hit me, especially the fact that Kirsten Dunst was involved, that's when my mind felt blown because I was kind of brushing her off as just kind of being in the way. But I don't really know that she was. I think this was intentional, the way that she was behaving. It was all just like a slow, gradual revelation. I was literally astounded. I was honestly taking a shower that night, washing my hair. And I was in the shower like, whoa, wait a second. I had to rush out to like tell my husband what I was thinking. And also what I appreciate about this film is they don't actually provide any exposition or confirmation or clarification of what's going on. And I appreciate that. I think it's kind of refreshing. Like as much as you like to know for sure what's going on and why something's happening, 
it um, kind of just trusts you as a viewer to let you draw your own conclusion. It's much similar to reading a book, really, because the book doesn't always tell you what's up. You just come to your own conclusions. So since Peter was studying medicine throughout the film, I think that was the first little breadcrumb, he had an understanding and a depth of knowledge of disease and how disease was spread and how animal disease was spread. So when you don't, I like, there's a scene where he's cutting hide off of a dead cow. I didn't really think much of it when he was doing that. I just thought he was, they were showing that he had kind of a morbid curiosity especially since it happens earlier in the film when you're still kind of getting a feel for who these people are. So then later, he offers that rawhide to Phil to use for rope. Like, it did not even cross my mind that that was connected. And then they even subtly mention earlier on in the film that anthrax is a disease that is spread by dead animals and that causes you to die. And that ultimately is what ends up killing Phil. So it was honestly a really gratifying slow burn because once you put it together that that hide, the strips of the hide that Peter gave Phil was from that dead cow and then they literally showed Phil tying rope with it and submerging his hands in it in the water and on which he had like a cut on his hand also. And once you realize that like that was the sequence of events that made him sick, you were like, Okay, what? <laughs> it's just, it's insane to me. And so then I think the detail that really pushed me over the edge was, and that made me have the hour later revelation was the aspect of Rose being an alcoholic. I still am not even sure if it was real, like, as, like her character was actually dealing with this or if it was just kind of an act that she was putting on. Because planting the liquor bottles all over and making sure Phil saw her drinking everywhere. She was kind of the crux in making sure all of those hot, those actual hides and like the pelts were taken away so that Phil would later gladly accept the hides that Peter was giving him. And so that little aspect of it alone, like her insisting that the people take away everything, I really just can't accept that as being purely coincidental. It just seems like it it fits too well for it to be a complete coincidence. Unless it was just all coincidence and he just happened to give him these infected hides. Who's to say? But this is the conclusion that I am sticking with. And I think all of these layers alone is why this is a super well-crafted film. Definitely. The icing on the cake for me was the final scene, though, and also kind of why I'm putting a firm period at the end of my <laughs> decision that this is the in the interpretation that I have. So that the icing on the cake, like I said, final scene of the movie, Peter sees Rose and George, George being Jesse Plemons, coming home from Phil's funeral, and they're kissing one another, and he's watching out the window. He kind of turns and has a really devious smirk on his face. I feel like if you were genuinely sad or concerned, you would not have that expression. So, uh, then kind of reminded me of the opening narration, which he's talking about protecting his mother, just to kind of simplify that. 
It made me think, did this kid also get rid of his father, who you learned that his father, quote unquote, died of suicide? It's possible, kind of a Norman Bates kind of vibe going on here. Does he like eliminate people from her life that cause harm to her well-being? Possible. Um, on that note, if that were the case, maybe she actually did start taking up drinking because Phil's presence was just so harmful to her that he then cast Phil as being a threat and had to get rid of him. It just, like, it makes my mind kind of explode with questions. It's just, like, running wild. I can't even think of a recent film that has caused this many questions in my head before. And again, I say recent film. I know there's definitely something that has, but in more recent years, nothing came to mind immediately. And then also the film's title itself comes from a Bible verse in Psalms, which they show Peter reading in this final scene. And that metaphor, I believe, directly connects to the behaviors he has exhibited as well. Just because it's like if you're making a point to show him reading that, I believe it's implying that there's some premeditative behavior going on here. It's just wild. I really can't, <laughs> I can't think of any more synonyms to describe it. Um, but apart from that, just like the storyline in general, the cinematography, the scenery was gorgeous. Acting was solid. The music was done by Johnny Greenwood, who is from Radiohead. He also did Licorice Pizza this year. So it had a really different kind of vibe to it. It was really distinct. It really added to the tone. It wasn't your usual, I guess, kind of Western sounding music. There's a lot of quick string sounds and I really enjoyed the music added an a interesting level of suspense to the story so I don't think personally for me this stands out as the top nominated film of the year in the same realm as other past nomination leaders have like for example Titanic or La La Land um I don't even know if I would consider this like one of the top movies I saw this year, just from like an entertainment perspective. But it's definitely a super strong film. I think it's certainly worth watching at least once. And as obviously mentioned, it does have the most nominations of the year, 12 nominations, including Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Score, editing, production design, and sound. It has already won several things. It won Best Picture at the BAFTAs, the Golden Globes, the Critics' Choice. It also won Best Director at the BAFTAs, the Globes, the Critics' Choice. Uh, it won Best Supporting Actor and Cody Smith McPhee at the Globes. And then it also won two other awards at the Critics' Choice, including Adapted Screenplay and Cinematography. So it's clearly making waves. I guess my initial assumption of what it has the best chance of winning. I think it is honestly going to be a shoe in for best picture just because the best director aspect feels pretty much as a shoe in. People seem to just be kind of reveling over her Jane Campion this year. Um, I think adapted screenplay, cinematography, score, and production design also stand a really solid chance. So this also puts Jane Campion and Steven Spielberg up against each other for Best Director. The last time that that happened with those two was in 1993 for Schindler's List and The Piano. 
in that case, Spielberg won. So if Campion won, that'd be kind of a cool little Oscar history fact to throw out there. So yeah, we'll just have to see what happens with this one. Again, it is available on Netflix. If you have not watched it yet, I completely ruined the plot for you. So I do apologize for that. If you have watched it, do you think the same things? Do you think it does have all these layers? Or do you think I'm just overthinking the crap out of it? Uh, that's just kind of where I'm going to leave it. Um, give it a watch. If you did watch already, see if all the layers are going to unfold in the same way that they did for me. And that is the power of the dog. Next on today's episode is Nightmare Alley, which was directed by Guillermo del Toro. Has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 80%. Currently available to stream on Hulu and HBO Max. So the plot of this film is about a man who learns how to be a mentalist while working at a carnival. He tries to exploit this act that he has developed to profit off of the wealthy, and things eventually turn bad for him. So, obviously Guillermo del Toro is fairly notable. His last movie he did was The Shape of Water in 2017, which of course won Best Picture that year. He's also done Crimson Peak, Pacific Rim, Hellboy 1 and 2. Pan's Labyrinth, Blade 2, and a few more. Those are just some of the more recent ones, I believe, since the early 2000s. So this movie is a remake of a 1947 noir film, also based on a 1946 novel of the same name by William Lindsay Gresham. Del Toro announced this project in 2017. He also wrote the film, He considers it to be an adaptation of the novel versus a complete remake of the first film. So interesting thing I saw was that Leonardo DiCaprio was actually in contention for the lead role in April 2019, but he was soon replaced by Bradley Cooper later that June. Filming then began in January 2020 in Canada. It was moved to Buffalo, New York shortly later in February to kind of capture just some different settings that people might not be as familiar with seeing. So that was kind of cool. The filming was actually supposed to begin in September 2019, but it was delayed due to Bradley Cooper's schedule. He had some conflicts. Del Toro himself ended up making the call to pause the production in March 2020 due to the pandemic. And then shortly after, it was like officially halted by the studio. Production actually resumed that September, and then it wrapped in December 2020. So still getting some of these pandemic-interrupted productions playing out. So we're not totally past it yet, which I thought we were for a stretch there, but uh, looks like probably kind of winding down on some of these last few big ones to be interrupted in 2020. So this film had its world premiere in New York in December 1st, 2021. Theatrical release on December 17th, 2021. It was delayed a few weeks from December 3rd. I don't think that was pandemic related. But who's to say? <laughs> and uh, something else I saw that I didn't actually know at the time was a black and white version of the film was released by Searchlight Pictures on January 14th, 2022 in select theaters. I missed that completely, which uh, since it is kind of a neo-noir, would have been actually kind of interesting to watch in that format. As I mentioned, it is streaming on Hulu and HBO Max. Those were both available for that on February 1st. So in watching this, going into it, 
something I kind of realized and I think I'm going to firmly plant my flag on is that I don't really care for Del Toro in regards to his storytelling. I really appreciate his cinematic style, but I just usually don't feel like I'm fully on board or connecting emotionally with the stories. So much like I did with my licorice pizza drive my car episode, I'm going to try to draw out more of the positive aspects and things that are worth um, noting and applauding versus dwelling on (laughs) negative things. So first thing I really enjoyed about this movie was that it was a very modern version of a classic noir. So it did really have a strong aesthetic and a really gorgeous cinematography. I really don't think you see movies like this much as in terms of like modern releases. So from that aspect, it totally does enrich modern cinema. Because it kind of allows you to be introduced to that style without having to necessarily watch a movie from 1947. Especially if you aren't accustomed to watching movies from that era. So it's kind of a more palatable way to kind of get involved in that genre, or I guess subgenre, of film. So this movie also had a really strong, like, don't fly too close to the sun kind of vibe. <laughs> like that, what is it, Icarus? Um, and I think Bradley Cooper played that, that type of role really well. You could see the full rise and fall of his entire character arc throughout the length of this film. And they also kind of wrapped that into his mingling with a psychotherapist. So you got the slow unravel of his actual demons that he was dealing with, um, mostly related to his dying father. So that was also kind of playing out while just his overall arc was playing out. The film plot overall was kind of slow. It did have a very slow burn to it. It had a very unfortunate ending, which kind of almost felt like a slap in the face. But it is a very strong moral lesson, you know, like the flying too close to the sun thing and getting burned. So from that aspect, it totally makes sense. And it's almost like a very desperate look at what someone will do to achieve their what they believe to be their dream in life. So Stan, who is Bradley Cooper's character, uh, he was in a position at the very beginning of the film to literally learn everything about how the carnival is run how they recruit their acts. Specifically, he learns how they find their geek. I had to look up what this is because, I mean, I obviously saw how it was being portrayed in the film, but I wasn't sure, I wasn't familiar with it being used as a phrase and such, apart from calling someone a geek or like a nerd, like that context. So what I read just on the internet that I Googled was a geek was kind of this rundown person. They essentially kept locked in a cage And their way of performing was they would lure them out and make them eat a live chicken in front of everyone. And uh, it's very disturbing. And especially in modern times, (laughs) it's very much uh, abuse and (laughs) taking advantage of someone who's very down and out. And there's a scene where Willem Dafoe's character, who is running the carnival at the beginning of the film, is explaining how they get people to be the geek. And it's essentially taking someone who is completely down and out on rock bottom. Maybe they're alcoholic or, you know, just very inclined to take liquor from people. They spike the liquor with opium, essentially creating a drug addict out of them. And then to keep them hanging around and doing what they want, they'll just keep giving them opium. 
And uh, yeah, it's very unfortunate to learn all of that. <laughs> so uh, by the end of the film, this is a spoiler alert as well. If you have not watched this yet, just your heads up here. By the end of the film, after Stan has hit his bottom, he himself is in a position where he finds himself being recruited, for lack of a better word there, uh, as a geek in a different carnival. And he has fallen so far, he just gives in. He doesn't even try to resist it. And that made me furious. I'm not even kidding. I, I was furious. As I was just saying, William Defoe's character literally spells it out for him and makes it clear that this is the lowest you can go. And he literally just made that bed and he slept in it. So, yeah, very disturbing ending. Just disturbing in terms of like, it's like a really unfortunate fate to see him fall in once you actually saw it play out earlier on in the film when he wasn't in such a bad place. Um, and what was also kind of interesting about all of it was his character at first was really sharp and he picked up really well on how things run and how to become a mentalist and kind of how to play off the audience and manipulate things for their act. So he makes mention to Kate Blanchett's character, like maybe a third of the way through the film, that he doesn't drink because he likes to stay sharp for his act. And I didn't think the most of it at the time. I thought he was just explaining why he doesn't drink. But later on, he takes a drink from her almost defiantly because she's the one who notes it in the first place to him. And it's, it felt almost like he was proving to her that he can let loose and he can enjoy a drink, especially once he thought he could trust her because she was kind of helping him with his money-making scheme. And so I think he thought she could be trusted. And so he was just kind of letting his guard down. But at, from that point on, it, he slowly was starting to lose control and just kind of slip out of the position he had found himself in. It started to really make me question if he was so far gone from alcohol that he just truly didn't even realize that he had gone so far and put himself in such a bad position to eventually become the geek. Which uh, kind of made the ending even more chilling than it already was because... It's like, I obviously could see what was going to happen. Did he? Or was he just so out of it that he was just like, okay, I'll just take whatever I can. Very, very freaky. Very cringy situation. It's <laughs> the best way I can put it. Old-timey carnival stuff is super inky in general to me. So it's just a little unsettling. <laughs> um... The other twist of Dr. Ritter, Kate Blanchett's character, two-timing him didn't also seem very surprising to me. Like, he offers her to split the money. She's like, oh, I don't need money. They're making money off of her clients by her giving him session notes about their demons and then he can exploit that and do private sessions with them and make money. Essentially, that's the ruse they come up with. She's like, I don't need the money. And so, but she stores it in her safe. She eventually takes the money from him. I felt like it maybe might have supposed to have been like a bigger, like, kind of like deception moment, but I didn't think it was too jarring. It was like, okay, it kind of makes sense. But it did actually make me wonder if she was kind of in control from the jump because she actively steps in 
while he's doing one of his performances to kind of almost try to prove him wrong and prove that he is a fake. And then I took it a step further even from there because <laughs> that's what I do. And I questioned if this was an act all of her own where she manipulates these people that are mentalists in, in like her own way. Like maybe she's done this before where she uses these mentalists to make money off of people and then just kind of leaves them in the lurch. So that aspect of it was honestly more intriguing to me than purely following Bradley Cooper's story arc. Um, so yeah, I was, I don't know that, I think honestly that one element is why I'm kind of like, Ooh, that was kind of good. But in general, this movie had a very obvious moral message, but like I was just saying, it did leave me feeling a little unsettled after watching it. So Del Toro has turned into kind of an Academy favorite. So, I mean, it all kind of makes sense why it's nominated for everything this year. And the style of this film, 100% hands down, is what stands out for me. I'm probably never going to forget the carnival stuff and the geek storyline just because it was so unsettling. But I will definitely recall this film as a, a really good example of modern noir. And it is nominated currently for four Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Cinematography, Best Costumes, and Best Production Design. I, as I was watching it, I was like, wow, the production design on this is solid. So I think that has a chance of winning that. And on that note, I think it does have a chance of cinematography, but I don't really have too high hopes of it winning in general, if I'm going to be completely honest. Hasn't really racked up anything, any other award shows this year. But it's also been noted by several articles and such that Bradley Cooper was snubbed for his role in Licorice Pizza. After watching both of the movies, seeing him in both these roles, I would honestly argue that maybe he was more of a snub for this role over that one because like, he had to carry this movie. You had to empathize with him and relate to him and, you know, at the end, like actually feel sad for him. But you also had to understand like why he was doing what he was doing and kind of believe it. Him, like you had to believe in the act yourself that he was capable of pulling this off and I think he did all of that really well so it was probably just one of those scenarios where he was just on the cusp of being nominated but missed it by someone else taking the place it is what it is he's clearly doing well with his roles as of late so I'm sure we'll see him pop up again um but yeah that is Nightmare Alley it's currently streaming on Hulu and HBO Max Give it a try if you haven't watched it yet. Just be mindful of what you're getting yourself into. Because as I mentioned, it is a little unsettling. But it is a pretty interesting story if you can get past all of that. On the next episode, I will be discussing the final two films that I needed to watch that are nominated for Best Picture this year. And those are Don't Look Up and King Richard. If I'm able to fit in any other films that are nominated for some of the other categories, which I hope to do, I'll try to knock out a double episode for those as well. Otherwise, you'll definitely be getting those best picture reviews before the award show, which is creeping up slowly on us here. I'm also going to be putting out my final ballot results, or I guess my final ballot selections, and kind of some of my predictions for the show now that I have many more of the films under my belt. So we got a lot of good things coming up, including the actual Oscars themselves. So it's going to be an exciting 
next few weeks, and I hope you will join me for the ride. Thank you for listening today and for joining me on yet another trip to the movies. Thank you.